I begin with a prayer for preaching from the private prayers of Lancelot Andrews, an Anglican saint who lived from the 15th to the 16th century. Lord, O oh Lord, give me the tongue of the learned, that I may know what manner word I ought to speak, and may speak what word soever is to the use of edifying, that thou mayest minister grace to the hearers. I don't know about you, but the passage about the fruit of the Spirit is one of those passages of Scripture I frequently refer to, but rarely read within the context of the entire letter. Until now, I don't think I even really thought of the fruit of the Spirit as part of the same letter as the statements, a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, and there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave nor free, there is no longer male nor female. Like 1 Corinthians 13, or John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Galatians 5.22-23, the passage about the fruit of the Spirit, has become its own separate entity. There's much good in having familiar and cherished passages to walk around with, but in this case, and I would say this is also the case with 1 Corinthians 13 and John 3.16, we benefit from taking a long, hard look at the fruit of the Spirit within the context of the entire letter. The passage about the fruit of the Spirit fits snugly within the context of the letter of Galatians and in fact connects with the instructions about being justified not by works of the law but through faith in Christ and the statement about there being neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Read Galatians closely and you will see that the letter is highly interconnected with repetition in words and expansion upon ideas given previously and interconnected statements that build into entire arguments that span multiple chapters. And yet there is a tendency to separate the passage about the fruit of the Spirit from the rest. Why? Likely because Paul's statement that we are no longer justified by works of the law is taken to mean too much. Readers and scholars have had a tendency to ignore the fruit of the Spirit in the final chapters of the letter because they seem to talk about ethics. If we read Paul as against works, reducing Paul to an opposition between works and faith, then we may be blind to the significance of his speaking about proper attitudes and behavior. Paul appears to be making a distinction between the pathway to good behavior rather than diminishing good behavior entirely, and that makes the statements about the fruit of the Spirit climactic rather than a denouement that is a little bit detached from the rest. The fruit of the Spirit are the fruit of the change spoken about from the very first chapter and throughout. Paul's letter to the Galatians describes the story of Paul's change from before Christ to after Christ and the corresponding change in the congregation in Galatia that involves the giving of the Spirit of God. For Paul, the Galatians are moving away from this original change in a backward direction, and he mocks the Galatians with the statement, are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? For Paul, the move is from something that is divine backward to the merely human and the worldly. Rather than being against law, Paul suggests that being in the Spirit, they are now able to fulfill the law, Galatians 5:13 to 16 states, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law can be summed in a single commandment, namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. However, if you continually bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Here in chapter 5, close to the end of the letter, after Paul has spoken seemingly disparagingly about the law, he now brings us back to how to fulfill the law. To these Galatian converts who want so much to follow God that they are willing to be circumcised and change their eating habits and who they eat with, 
Paul says, love your neighbor and live by the Spirit, and you will fulfill the law. Derived from the statement in the Hebrew Bible in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, becomes emphasized in Second Temple Judaism and in the New Testament writings. But the prevalence of the love commandment is not superseding the law. Rather, as Jesus, and as we will have seen in Galatians, the whole law can be summed up in a single commandment, namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. The demand that Paul is making in Galatians is that people live by the Spirit and so fulfill the law, rather than following the law in order to fulfill the law. When we become Christians, um, because we believe the good news about Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again, we were given the Spirit, and this enables us to love. This new way of living is effective because we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. We actually have the ability to love like Christ because he indwells us. This is why going backward is so appalling to Paul. We can now love as Christ loves. But what, is, what does this mean? What is love? First of all, living by love is an attitude described by Paul as distinct from the opposite attitude. It falls into the importance attached to the heart and the mind in the New Testament writings, where what is in the heart is a critical step to how we live. Paul states that the fruit of the Spirit is love, in addition to a series of other attitudes or emotions, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and the opposite of being driven by passions and desires, being conceited, competing against one another, and being one another. Rather than a competitive attitude, Paul states, you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. Love is described as an attitude of service to one another. All of these things require paying attention to how we are in our hearts, that if our hearts are right towards others, discoverable through prayer and listening to how we complain about others, we are on our way to acting rightly. But that's not all. Secondly, love is not the opposite of the law, but the fulfillment of the law. I think love has become overly reduced for us. So far are we from the Jewish people who are steeped in the words and the practices of the Hebrew Bible. I think that when the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is held as the fulfillment of the law, it contains within it the law. Of course, this requires a lot of qualification, but I only have 10 minutes. It contains within it the notion that love is somehow the fulfillment of the instructions to return a neighbor's farm animal if it crosses over into your land, or to avoid stinginess and leave fruit on the vine to be gleaned. It includes an ongoing concern for widows and orphans, an acknowledgement of the poor, and even the kind of integrity towards animals that requires that a baby animal not be boiled in the milk of its mother. Love has content and therefore demands of us more than feelings without practice. This, I think, clarifies also how we are to be in our relationships with those for whom love comes easily, since the maintenance of those relationships over time requires acting with appropriate boundaries and with propriety and integrity. This most central commandment of Christianity demands also that we love more people than just those for whom love comes easily. It requires that we act properly to those in our school, our workplaces, and our families, and that we have compassion for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and strive toward eliminating justice for the oppressed here and around the world. This is the case if love has something to do with the Torah. The net widens if we take Jesus' statement seriously that we are to love an even wider net and love our enemies. Love is truly all-encompassing, then, in who is the object of our love, and this is radical, demanding an about-face in our natural, fleshly, worldly tendencies. 
Finally, shifting the focus from the law fulfilling the law to the spirit fulfilling the law requires communion with God. The fruit of the spirit are just that. They're fruit, like fruit grown from a tree. And they will be grown in a person who has a relationship with God and a life built on that trust. This means that to live love, we need to know the God who first loved us. We will continue to grow this fruit as we are attached to the vine. Pray and worship and practice the faith in an effort to know and love God. In conclusion, like the confession frequent in the Anglican liturgy, I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I do not think it is any less of a worthy endeavor, though, because I so frequently fall short and make that confession true. Loving my neighbor is an ideal I am willing to live for. It seems better to seek this way of life than material possessions or recognition, not simply because this is what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. It is proven in experience for Christians and non-Christians alike that seeking after money and success frequently produces a sense of emptiness, especially at the end of life when these things cannot comfort you or save you. Simply holding love as a central goal is important then, and this is what scripture teaches. We see love as central when loving one's neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. We see love as the greatest when we read faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I've already alluded to the statement that you cannot love God and mammon. Of the fruits of the Spirit, love is first for a reason. It is an attitude of the heart and the mind. It is overarching. It fulfills the law. And it is entirely possible because we have the Spirit of Christ. Thank you.